<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So my op-ed today over at uh, HartmanReport.com is uh, titled Oligarchy, When Brutal Capitalism Becomes More Important Than Democracy. And there's a point to that. It goes back to an interview that I had on this program with Stephen Moore. And this was years ago. This was, this was you know, back like 2008, 2010, something like that. It was long before he was working for Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, I asked him just straight up, in fact, there's a link to the actual interview. It's on YouTube uh, in, the, uh, in the article at HartmanReport.com. I asked Stephen Moore, I said, you know, which is more important, capitalism or democracy? And he, without a missing a beat, he said, capitalism. Uh, his rationale was that without capitalism, you can't have democracy, which is, you know, kind of sketchy. But without debating that, the point that I'm making in this, in this op-ed and that I want to make right now is that we are now in a full-blown oligarchy in the United States. And that's, that's a dangerous thing because oligarchies almost never last more than a single generation. Oligarchy is rule of, by, and for the rich. For example, yesterday the New York Times was reporting uh, or actually it was the Washington Post was the one, one that I read, that the Sackler family, this, this multi-billion dollar, multi-billionaire family, uh, are reaching a settlement with the individual states that are suing them for killing a half million Americans with their marketing practices around OxyContin. Uh, the Sackler family is going to get to keep somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 billion, and they're going to give the states $4 billion over a nine-year period which means that they probably will pay most of it with the interest they're making on the money that they, ha that they have invested. But uh, whatever, uh, this is the new settlement. But back in 2007, they, they had worked out a settlement where they said, okay, we won't, we won't push these drugs anymore. Sorry, you know, we didn't mean to kill all those people. And then as the Washington Post notes, after that 2007 settlement, quote, the Sackler, the family members, including Richard Sackler, David Sackler, Mortimer D.A. Sackler, Kathy Sackler, and Jonathan Sackler, who is now deceased, demanded in 2012 that company executives come up with a plan to generate greater revenue in response to slumping sales, according to the Justice Department settlement. These guys are recidivists. They're repeat criminals, right? Career criminals. And they're billionaires, so what's going to happen? Well... They're going to have to take some of the dividends and interest that they're making off their, off their you know, 10 billion bucks and pay it back to some of the states to kind of do some, undo some of the damage for all those dead people and all those lives that have been shattered and all those families that have been destroyed. But they're not going to have to give up any of their mansions or their chalets or, or you know, they're not going to have to stop flying in their private jets. Meanwhile, Jessica Resnick yesterday, or maybe it was the day before, was just sentenced to eight years in prison. Eight years, hard time. She's 39 years old. Her crime? She damaged a pipeline, an oil pipeline that was in construction. She, at her sentencing, she said, quote, the toxins we enter into our waterways here in Iowa enter into the Mississippi, which enters into the Gulf of Mexico. Going to this extreme was out of character for me. She was trying to save her community. She was trying to save the world. She's going to prison for eight years because she's not a billionaire. 
I mean, it, it just really comes right down to that. And on the same day that she was sentenced, an ExxonMobil lobbyist and senior executive came out and said, well, you know, we're not going to, uh, we're not, we're going to block a carbon tax, even though we say we're in favor of it. We're not going to uh, allow any kind of substantive legislation to pass that is going to move America off a fossil fuel-based economy. And by the way, I've got a dozen uh, senators in my back pocket, including Joe, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. We own them here at ExxonMobil. Now, it's not a verbatim quote, but it's, you know, I mean, you can look it up. And so, you know, he's, he says this the same day that, that, that Jessica gets, you know, sentenced to eight years in prison. And nobody from Exxon is going to jail. Nobody's even paying a fine for like the heat dome that hit us here for three days with 116 degree weather that killed over 116 people in Oregon, killed a couple hundred people in Washington state, killed over 500 people in British Columbia, fried over a billion sea animals just on the Canadian coast. Exxon's not even, not only is nobody going to jail, nobody's even paying a fine. And the fossil fuel money, it just keeps rolling in to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. And if you and I try to mobilize to do something about it, to stop them at, at the polls, to stop ExxonMobil's efforts or their bought-off politicians, yeah, the Republican election, elected officials said, yeah, we can just purge people from the voting rolls that we don't like. We can make sure that they face a 10-hour line to vote. This, this is what the Supreme Court said last week. It's okay if Texas writes a law. Texas is criminalizing voting. They're, they're creating a do, over a dozen new felonies, all associated with voting. You help somebody fill out their, their ballot, you could go to prison. You bring them a, a, an absentee ballot, you could go to prison. You fill out your ballot wrong. You, you, put, you put in your full middle name instead of your initial or vice versa. You know, you, you, it doesn't match what your voter registration says. So you can go to prison. They're proposing a dozen new felonies. And this is very simple. I mean, you know, they sent a black woman who voted after getting out of jail, not realizing that you can't do that in Texas. If you've ever gone to jail, you lose your vote. She voted. Her vote never got counted. It got caught. But they sentenced her to five years in prison for voter fraud, you know. I mean, what we're watching right now is the final stage of this 40-year program that Ronald Reagan kicked off to turn America from a forward-looking and still evolving democratic republic into a white supremacist ethno-state ruled by a small group of neo-fascist oligarchs. That's where we're at. And as I said earlier, the problem with oligarchy is that they are unstable. And the reason they're un unstable is because an oligarchy, virtually by definition, is the oligarchs, the very, very wealthy, extracting wealth and power, political power, from the people. And the people at some point say, enough! And then the oligarchy, the institutional, you know, the institution of these oligarchs does one of two things. Either it says, okay, we give up which is what happened in 1865 after a four-year war, five-year war, the Civil War, where the oligarchs in the South tried to overthrow our government. Or they say, you know, we give up like they did in 1933 after uh, Franklin Roosevelt busted their plan to kidnap and probably murder him when uh, General Smedley Butler spoke up. Or if they don't, if they don't lose or give up, or they... They double down and they turn the country into a police state, which is what happened in Russia. It's what happened in Turkey. It's what, it's what happened in Hungary. And those are just, you know, the European countries. Oligarchic governments always set up, once they get close to oligarchy, they set up the oligarchy and then prepare the way for this fascist state by, number one, changing laws and regulations so their buddies can own uh, or control most of the media. You know, see 1987, Reagan does away with the Fairness Doctrine. 1996, Bill Clinton signs the Telecommunications Act, which does away with local ownership rules. Number two, they stack the courts and regulatory agencies with oligarch-friendly ideologues or outright corrupt toadies. Look at what has happened in particular during the George W. Bush administration, 
and the Clean Skies Initiative, the Healthy Waters, and of course, Donald Trump's administration. Number three, they cut taxes on the rich and drive down wages on working people while criminalizing or cracking down on dissent, particularly any kind of dissent that involves property damage. This is what happened to this young woman who was just, just sent to prison for eight years. Number four, they distract voters from their own looting by demonizing minorities and encouraging racism. Is this starting to sound familiar? Number six, they actively suppress the vote among people inclined to oppose them, typically minorities and the young, or outright rig the vote to ensure their own victory. And finally, they transform their nation into a police state by heavily cr criminalizing demonstrations. You will recall over a dozen states now have passed laws saying, you know, either criminalizing protest in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests or allowing vigilantes to drive cars into them and kill people without penalty. They criminalize demonstrations. They criminalize nonviolent resistance. And of course, they criminalize direct action, property damage while they radicalize and encourage their vigilante militias. I mean, we saw this, we saw this in Italy in the 20s, we saw it in Germany in the 30s, we, you know, we, we saw it in Russia in the 90s, we saw it in Hungary in, in, two, in the 2010s. We're seeing it happen right now in the United States. Now, how do you stop that? You pass laws to, basically outlaw a lot of this kind of behavior and break up the monopoly. I was very gratified yesterday to see that Joe Biden issued an executive order directing all the federal agencies to start looking at these monopolies. That's the step one to taking apart an oligarchy. Number two, you've got the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, H.R. 4, and you've got the For the People Act, H.R. 1 which will make it much, much harder for these Republican-controlled states to make it harder for people to vote. And in order to get there, what do we have to do? We have to end the filibuster. And I don't care if ExxonMobil does say that he's, you know, the, 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 the lobbyist and senior executive does say that he's got Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin in his back pocket, along with a few others. A group of conservative groups all of them funded by right-wing billionaire interests. The Committee to Unleash Prosperity, Freedom Works, the Conservative Action Project, the Leadership Institute, and apparently dozens of other conservative groups are all getting together to uh, petition Republicans in Congress to stop negotiating with Democrats to raise taxes or, excuse me, to, to, this isn't even about raising taxes on corporations and rich people. It's about giving the IRS enough money so the Internal Revenue Service agents can actually audit the tax. Very, very complex, you know, Byzantine, labyrinthine uh, tax returns like uh, Donald Trump's, for example, with, uh, you know, he's got 800 different companies. This is what Enron did. Enron had 120 some odd companies. And if they had money, lose, they were losing money in one division, they would just move that loss over to another division, take it as a tax loss, then move that tax loss. So, you know, this is, this is what Trump does. This is, companies all across America do this. And especially billionaires. And, you know, they have put together this letter, basically, to, uh, to the groups. The letter says that Republicans should not negotiate with the White House, that's with President Biden, unless they agree to, and I'm quoting from the letter, no additional funding for the Internal Revenue Service. Now, prior to the Reagan administration, we had pretty good and pretty reasonable enforcement of the tax code in the United States. Reagan cut the budget for the Internal Revenue Service. George W. Bush cut the budget for the Internal Revenue Service. Donald Trump dramatically cut the budget for the Internal Revenue Service. And as a result, the IRS now, if you use inflation-adjusted dollars, is running at less than half the budget that they were when Reagan came into office. And without inflation-adjusted dollars, it's still a substantial cut from, from where it was back then. And the result of that is that the IRS today is more likely to audit a person who makes fifty to a hundred thousand dollars a year and has a home office than they are to audit a billionaire or a giant corporation. It's just they've just basically given up on it. 
And so these right-wing groups now are, are reaching out and saying, hey, no more funding for the IRS. Now, these are supposed to be political groups that are interested in freedom. Freedom apparently means the freedom not to pay your taxes and to get away with tax cheat, with cheating on your taxes, as Donald Trump has done for 40 years. And as many of these corporations have been doing, well, actually, Trump has been probably doing it more than 40 years, but many of these corporations have been doing it since the initial Reagan administration, the Reagan Revolution War on the Internal Revenue Service, followed by, you know, a war on the middle class. Let's raise the taxes of middle class people. You know, if, if you're earning under 100000 bucks or under $200,000 a year, if you're in the bottom 90% of Americans, you know, odds are you're paying about twice in actual real taxes from what your parents did or your grandparents did just back in the 70s or the 40s. And if you're, unless you're a billionaire, in which case you're paying one or two or three percent maximum income taxes on your, on your income and revenues. And the rest of us are picking up the slack. And corporations, you know, the top 400 corporations in America, I think it was 80, maybe 90 of them paid nothing in taxes. Many of them are getting money back every year. The Washington Post has an op-ed uh, by Greg Sargent today. Uh, an ugly new right-wing attack. This is what they're talking about, is this attack on funding the IRS. Poses a test for populists like J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance, of course, the guy who wrote Hillbilly Elegy. He's uh, what you might call a moderate Republican, and he's running for Rob Portman's seat in Ohio uh, for that Senate seat. And, uh, you know, basically what Greg Sargent is saying to him is, here's a chance to break with your, with your crazy right-wing funders. Will he do it? Well, increasingly, if you want to be successful as a Republican, you have to go along with the right-wing billionaires, because if you don't, and Donald Trump is one of them, of course. If you don't, they will fund your primary opponents and you will lose the primary. And because the gerrymandering is so uh, well entrenched in such an important part of, of Republican governing strategy, it's the way they continue to maintain power. It's why, for example, in Wisconsin, in the last two elections, more people voted for Democrats to go to the House of Representatives than voted for Republicans. And yet, the majority of the Wisconsin uh, de delegation to Congress is Republican. The same thing happened in Kentucky, I believe. Maybe it was Tennessee. The same thing happened in Michigan. The same thing happened in Pennsylvania. State after state, you've got a majority of elected officials who are Republicans, yet a majority of the people voted for Democrats. This is, you know, gerrymandering on steroids. So who helped set this up? It's these, all these state policy networks. Where do these state policy networks come from? These are local right-wing groups that produce opinion papers and, and uh, you know, uh, host events, pass out millions and millions of dollars, help get people elected to the state of House of Representatives, the state Senate, the state assembly, whatever it may be called in, in your particular state. These are all, most of them anyway, outgrowths of the old Coke network. You know, again, the old billionaire network. Meanwhile, you've got giant corporations who never were political before 1971, before Lewis Paul published his infamous memo in which he said, hey, corporate America, we need to take over politics. We need to take over the media. We need to take over our schools. We need to take over colleges, particularly political science and economic courses. We need to do this, we need to do it now, because Ralph Nader and Rachel Carlson are, are gunning for us. And it's literally what he said. Well, I shouldn't say literally. It's metaphorically what he said. He named, actually it's literal that he named Ralph Nader and he named Rachel Carlson, or Carson, whichever it is, in his memo. And said that, you know, they're promoting this whole Marxist idea of government regulation. And indeed, in the 1960s and 1970s, Ralph Nader, with his book Unsafe at Any Speed, and Rachel Carlson, with her book Silent Spring, both, uh, I think they were 65 and 67, or 67 and 69, um, those two books kicked off a consumer movement and an environmental movement in the United States. And by 71, Lewis Powell was looking at this, uh, a tobacco lawyer, by the way, totally freaked out and said, no, we've got to seize control of this political system. 
The next year, Richard Nixon put him on the Supreme Court. Four years later, the Supreme Court rules, hey, if a billionaire wants to own a politician, that's not corruption, that's not bribery, that's free speech. Money is speech. Two years later, in 78, with the Bellotti decision, they doubled down on that and said, oh, and that applies to corporations as well. And so now you've got corporations all across America that back after January 6th said, we will never again give money to those 147 Republicans who tried to over, who voted with the guys who were trying to overthrow our republic. We'll never do it again. And in less than two months, AT&T and Cigna and Intel, Laura Claussen blogging about this over at Daily Coast, by the way, uh, big corporations claimed they'd stop giving to Republicans who tried to overturn the election. They lied. Walmart, General Electric, Pfizer, all these companies, they're all supporting the insurrectionists again. They said what they thought would make them look good back in January, but hey, it's a corporation. Their loyalty isn't to democracy. If anything, they don't like democracy. Democracy means that the people come first. They would far prefer an authoritarian oligarchy where the oligarchs come first, the billionaires, the big corporations, the people who have the money, the, the old golden rule. You know, whoever has the gold gets to make the rules. That's what they want. And as I said, you know, Benito Mussolini, or at least Giovanni Gentile, his ghostwriter, referred to this as, he said, you know, fascism should more appropriately be called corporatism, for it's basically the merger of corporate and state interests. And that's what we have right now. And it is getting worse. And now there's a bunch of Republicans that are going to have to face some serious choice. And some Democrats as well. Now, as particularly now that the head lobbyist for Exxon has said that, you know, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin and Chris Coons and John Tester are all in his back pocket. Each one of them. I, I, you know, I hope that they will step up and say, no, we're not in the back pocket of Exxon. At least not anymore. We'll be back. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolf. Uh, Professor Wolf is the uh, an economist, professor of economics, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books, his most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails Us, Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. R.D. Wolf with two Fs.com, also in one of his websites. Prof. Wolf with two Fs is his Twitter handle. Professor Wolf, welcome back. I have two questions for you this week. The first is, 
this uh, effort, this uh, group of 20, this G20 meeting that's where they're talking about a global minimum corporate tax of sorts, and Ireland seems to be freaking out about it. And uh, over 800 American companies have uh, domiciled themselves there now. And then also the, the story that the Federal Reserve Board is about to stop buying securities as part of their quantitative easing program, QE. I know the market's down substantially. People think that that might have to do with the, uh, the, the Republican efforts to sabotage Biden through encouraging people not to get vaccinated. But anyhow, it's kind of a hodgepodge of stuff I'm tossing at you. But what are your thoughts on all this? Well, let's start with uh, Ireland. As you rightly say, Ireland does not want this associated with Janet Yellen to go forward. And the program is to stop the race to the bottom in which countries compete for corporations to locate their factories, their offices, and so on in the country that's playing this game. And the way the country does it is by dropping the corporate profit rate. There are places in the world where corporate profit taxes are zero, where a company can go and set up business or set up a pretense of business, have its profits show up on its books there, and pay absolutely no tax. And then there are countries around the world that have taxes up in the 10, 20, 30 percent range. United States, for example, 21 percent. Ireland's, last I look, was about 11 percent. So obviously, a company that wanted to cut its tax bill for its, on its profits could leave the United States and move to Ireland and go from a 21% of profits tax due to the government to merely 11 And that's what Ireland did. Ireland not alone, by the way. There are many countries that play this game. And there are countries that take it below Ireland in order to hopefully win the company to leave Ireland and go to the next place. There are, of course, expenses companies have. They don't move quite so easily and quickly. But taxes is one of the things companies are always looking for. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. Uh, the different states in the United States have played this game against one another, and they're doing it as I speak. And ditto cities have done this against one another, bidding for companies to come there. The end result is that the tax rates get pushed further and further down, in our cities, in our states, and internationally. And all that Janet Yellen's proposal says, and it's very modest, is that we should have a kind of agreement among countries not to drop the rate below 15%. That's at least what they've been discussing to this point. And Ireland doesn't want it. Other countries don't want it because it takes away this game that they've been playing very successfully. And so they're going to fight it. I wouldn't get too excited. It's going to take a while for this all to be worked out. And even if they agree, here's the hard reality. There are a lot of other ways that companies can persuade politicians in different cities, in different states, and in different countries to give them an advantage. You know, build a road over there and then I'll come. That will save the company huge amounts of money because it can route its trucks and so on in this way. Yeah, it's not a tax, but it's a kind of subsidy that the government gives. Then another government hears about it. They offer a, not only a road, but a, but a train track and a harbor. And pretty soon you will get what we have now, uh, desperately scarce resources in country after country basically being used to bribe corporations to go first to one and then the other. Uh, it's a very ugly game. It's been played for a long time. And all of the talk you're hearing is really mostly window dressing at barely one of the many ways that the game is played. Yeah. On yeah. the other point, if mm -hmm. I can just quickly get sure. to it, here's our problem. When the government prints money or increases the money supply, which the Federal Reserve has been doing now for at least the last decade, if not longer, you face a bizarre moment. Every business, man or woman in this country, has as one of his or her functions setting the price. Workers don't set the price of what they help to produce. It's the employers that do that. 
And when the employers see a lot more money in the economy, because the Federal Reserve is uh, pumping up the money, they then have an interesting choice to make. What am I going to do faced with people having more money to spend? I can either raise the price of what I sell to get my hands on more money that way, or I can order more goods, keep the price the same, and hope that the more money will buy more goods, and I make my profit on each sale. The problem over the last year and a half was that we had uh, the worst uh, economic crisis in a century and the worst public health crisis in a century at the same time. And what this meant was, even though the government was pumping in tons of money, businesses felt it impossible. They couldn't raise the price because the mass of people couldn't possibly buy, and if they dared to do it, their competitors wouldn't, and they'd lose their business. So they, and they didn't order more for, again, the same reason that the mass of Americans, given our unemployment, given the crisis, uh, couldn't and wouldn't buy. So we've had a year and a half of lots of money created, but no inflation because of these conditions. And the money decided, okay, if we can't invest in producing more, if businesses won't raise prices, then the money found its way into the stock market, where it drove things crazy, producing much greater inequality in this society, and making the stock market very, very nervous about the bloated uh, prices that have been attached to everything. Classic example of an inflation. But now here's the problem. The businesses who lost money over the last 18 months, they want to recoup some of the profits they didn't get. All those closed restaurants and movie theaters and department stores and malls, they've lost an enormous amount. Many of them went under. Those that didn't now want to take advantage of all of this money and now the sense of a quote-unquote recovery, so the eager ones are raising prices and perhaps even also raising output, buying more stuff as they raise more prices, hoping to take advantage of these good times to recoup some of what they lost. But the problem here is once some businesses start raising prices, their higher prices become inputs for other businesses that hurts the other businesses. So they try to react by raising their prices, and then we get the 5% inflation uh, that we have now, and that freaks out the Federal Reserve. They won't tell you that, but believe me, I know them. <laughs> they are very, very frightened, because if this inflation continues then that money is going to start pouring into the real goods and services economy, and prices are going to go very high up. And an already traumatized working class, traumatized by last 18 months of crisis, of uh, COVID, of collapsed economy, if they now see their purchasing power being driven away as they have this last year, then uh, the political implications of this frighten everybody who's paying attention. Yeah, for example, it hurt Jimmy Carter very badly back in the day. Um, right, and it would, it would be devastating for Mr. Biden. It would give the Republicans something to point to, blame him for. I mean, none of this is valid. None of this is true. The problems of our economy predate Mr. Biden. For that matter, they predate Mr. Trump, too. Uh, but they are suffering if they can't take the steps. And, and the most important thing here for me to say to, to, to your listeners and viewers we are in unprecedented territory. We've never had a simultaneous public health catastrophe and economic crash of these dimensions. You have to respond way beyond what the Biden administration has proposed, let alone what they're now compromising with the Republicans to do. That's not adequate to get us over this very serious problem. And if we don't, you can be sure that the Republicans who are forcing the compromise will then turn around and blame Biden and the Democrats for not having solved the problem. It's a very dangerous political economic moment. Yeah, there was a Republican uh, member of Congress yesterday who just came right out and said that the Republican strategy is to procrastinate, delay, basically string along the Democrats 
so to, to the point where they get absolutely nothing done and, and, and then blame it on the Democrats. And, and, and then I would add to that, you've got Tucker Carlson and Charlie Kirk talking about how vaccine Nazis and stuff, I don't know if that was a phrase that they used, but basically encouraging young people, college students, not to get vaccinated. It seems to me like that's also a political strategy. If we can get more illness, uh, really pick it up, you know, get some real serious illness going on in the United States, that's going to crash the economy again. And in fact, that's the excuse the stock market is, uh, you know, this is being made for the stock market. What's your thoughts on that? Yes, I think the stock market is overdue for what they call a correction. But very seriously, it is the inflation people claim they didn't see over the last uh, 10 years. It has gone crazy because all of the extra money, uh, a huge portion of it, flowed into the stock market to buy shares, sell them a few weeks or months later to the next person who's borrowing money from the Fed to do exactly the same thing. The prices go crazy. And if you see it and you understand it, you're very, very nervous. And if you see trouble coming, you're going to sell your stocks to get out before the catastrophe comes. And, and we're always on the knife edge of how many of the investors are going to do that from one day to the next. Yeah, yeah, uh, spot on. Professor Richard Wolf, uh, democracyatwork.info, Prof Wolf over on Twitter. Professor uh, Wolf, thanks so, so much for dropping by. It's always great talking with you. Glad to talk with you too, Tom. Thank you. I've been noticing quite a few articles about, okay, we're back, right? Uh, we're all vaccinated. Obviously, not all of us. There's this huge crisis going on. CNN, in fact, is reporting that there are five major clusters of Delta variant COVID that are infecting uh, parts of the United States. I mean, just like major clusters that uh, are, in fact, let me find the, the actual... Uh, story here. Here it is. It's titled Millions of Unvaccinated People in the Clusters. Uh, more than 15 million people. Only 27% of them are fully vaccinated. And these are largely in eight states, starting in the east in Georgia, stretching west to Texas and north to southern Missouri. Clusters also include parts of Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. Bottom line, you can look at a, a map of, of counties that voted for Donald Trump or counties that voted for Joe Biden. And it's almost a one-to-one -one predictor of whether the vaccination rate is above or below 50%, or, or substantially greater you know, delta than that. And so, but, but you know, for many of us, and for most of you know, kind of big city America anyway, and even a lot of medium-sized cities, where people are not so addicted to Fox News and Tucker Carlson's lies about the vaccine and stuff like that and didn't follow Trump so uh, thoughtfully, I don't know, <laughs> sheepishly. In those areas, life is getting back to normal. I mean, I'm, I'm here in the studio with Sean and Nate, and we're all six feet apart from each other, but we're not wearing masks, and, and Joyce, uh, you know, is answering the phone over there. And, and uh, you know, we're, I still wear masks when I go into stores out of an abundance of caution, but most people don't, it seems, here in Portland. Uh, we, we hit 70%. Uh, I think we only had like 20 cases that were diagnosed yesterday in all of Multnomah County, which is, you know, like almost a million people. So we're doing pretty good and we're getting back to normal. But the question is, how are you adjusting to that? Right. Have we all achieved a new kind of homeostasis, a new stability, a, a new um, mental, well, social, really, uh, stability? where it feels okay to be under home arrest with an ankle bracelet on, you know? It's like, yeah, okay, we just did this for 14 months, ordering food in, not visiting with our friends. It wasn't so bad. In fact, there were some upsides to it. You know, I've, I've, Louise and I binged watched some really great shows, and uh, I got a lot of writing done. I wrote a whole book during this. Uh, it, it will be out in about a year, The Hidden History of Big Brother about you know, social media and how we're all being spied upon and government spying and everything else. It's, uh, it was a fascinating book to write. It just, I, literally yesterday afternoon, I sent off the, the, uh, the, the final draft to, to the publisher for line editing and typesetting. So, you know, 
but uh, on the other hand, you know, we have company over, we have friends come over, we have family come over, and uh, particularly when they have unvaccinated little kids, I'm still getting nervous. And there's a fair amount of neuroscience the, the, uh, over at theconversation.com. There are two fascinating articles. One's called Going Back to Nor- Going Beyond Back to Normal, Five Research-Based Tips for Emerging from Pandemic Life. Things like set realistic expectations, live your values, which literally involves making a list of how you, how you think you should spend your time and how you're actually spending your time. Uh, is this a time for growth or preservation instead? Uh, recognizing your privilege and paying it forward. So that's one of their uh, little conversations. And the other is titled The Neuroscience Behind Way Your Brain May Need Time to Adjust to Unsocial Distancing. And that is that, and I think this has something to do with why uh, recidivism rates are so high when people are institutionalized, when they go to prison, or in some cases, you know, mental hospitals or, or uh, other kinds of facilities where they're basically locked away. You see this, uh, you know, frequently with people with addiction facilities as well. And it's that they get used to, or we get used to the new environment. We develop a new social network within that environment. You know, like over the last year for Louise and I, it was Every Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, we had a Zoom call with all of our family all over the country. And it was really nice. And, you know, we haven't done that in a while, and we're kind of missing it. In fact, I'm going to send a a Zoom email out to my family members tomorrow saying, hey, how about tomorrow morning? But, you know, I don't know if anybody's going to show up. It's like people are back to to life and back to normal. And that's kind of a cool thing. I mean, it's it's actually definitely a wonderful thing, uh, assuming that the unvaccinated among us in this country don't produce a new variant. There is, there is now they're talking about the Lambda variant. And then of course there's the Delta plus variant that has not yet really hit the United States, but it's the Delta variant with another little mutation that makes it even easier to, to catch and, and easier for it to kill you. But if you're unvaccinated, the uh, statistics just came in from June, by the way, for the entire month of June, um, 90, I believe it was 99.2% of all deaths were among people who were unvaccinated. And that tiny little slice of people who died and, and were fully vaccinated were almost certainly people who, um, you know, the vaccine didn't take because they were on immunosuppressive drugs or they were suffering from autoimmune disorders or, you know, for some reason their immune system just didn't respond properly to the virus, and uh, which is not the norm. I mean, they're, they're the very much the exception. So the bottom line is, if you're vaccinated, if you're fully vaccinated, two shots, um, uh, or with the J&J, apparently, um, you know, you're probably in good shape. But how, how are you feeling about that? Ed in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Hey, Ed, what's on your mind today? Tom, I was wondering if uh, any economist has ever thought about an alternative minimum tax for corporations. Because, you know, with their tax dodging and whatnot, as they get closer and closer to getting their taxes down to zero, they do less and less productive things with the money just so they can get their tax down to zero. It it might be that the corporations would benefit and so would the government if there was an alternative minimum tax. So they they know they had to pay tax anyway, even if they gave, you know, even if they gave all the money to charity, they still have to pay tax. Yeah. There, there has to be some kind of a threshold, though. I mean, there, having started a bunch of corporations in my life, I can tell you, you know, the first couple of years, you don't take a paycheck, you're putting your own money into it. Um, you shouldn't have to be paying taxes on top of that. Well, you know, the taxes could be graduated just like the income tax. Yeah. I, I mean, I get it with, yeah, of course, but I, as, as is corporate tax, by the way, corporate taxes are progressive already. Um, but, uh, you know, some sort of an alternative minimum tax. You know, like with the with regular taxpayers, the alternative minimum tax doesn't kick in until you've made, uh, you know, some really substantial amount of money. What is it, 150,000 a year or something like that? I mean, it's a, it's a it's a lot of cash uh, before you have to start paying the AM the AMT if if it's still in law. I'm not even sure that it hasn't been nuked by the Trump tax cuts. Um, but uh, you know, back in the day, that was that was the deal. So. I don't know. It's an idea. It's an idea. Thank you, Ed. Patrick in Santa Monica. Hey, Patrick, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I think uh, three things should be reinstated. Uh, one is the reinstating the uh, uh, added value tax. Oh, you mean instating? We've never had one here. 
Oh, okay. Well, we should really inst- uh, basically uh, put it in. Second one is preventing stock buybacks using this, uh, what do you call it, this this problem that we're having in the stock market. Now, I'm sure that uh, lawmakers could create uh, legislation that uh, basically specifies that if you're given a tax break specifically aimed at hiring employees, you can't buy back stocks. Or the effort to buy back stocks in order to increase executive compensation should be banned. Or the effort to buy back stocks in order to raise the value of the of the of the stock itself. That's that's called stock manipulation. And prior to the Reagan administration, that was all illegal. Corporations could buy back their shares, but they couldn't do it in a way that would affect the market. And now the only reason they do it is to affect the market. I mean, it's just that simple. You know, buy back ten billion dollars worth of stock, and and uh, you know the, the 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 value of the stock that is held by the senior executives all goes up by millions and millions of dollars. And this is how. Other things that we can do is to discourage uh, moving companies moving overseas to avoid taxes is to go ahead and uh, refuse to protect those shipping containers, those cargo ships that are charged the companies. Or U.S. Navy, we pay billions of dollars a year, trillions, over a trillion dollars to protect foreign business interests. Yeah, it's it's probably actually several hundred billion because it's a piece of our roughly eight or nine hundred billion dollar year defense budget. But you're absolutely right, and we're we're protecting foreign oil, we're protecting imports. Um, on the other hand, there are there are some you know there's some good shipping that's going on, you know, American goods being sold overseas and things. That's a tough one, Patrick, but uh, I think that's better dealt with uh, with uh, tariff policy. Patrick, thank you for the call. We'll be back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. Mary in Seattle. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind today? Hi. I wanted to talk about why the people that support Trump and the Civil War and all of these things, they support a losing causes, and why do they want to support a loser deal and even racism and hating? That's uh, losing And if you think about it, some people don't know that the guy, Jefferson Davis, I guess he was the uh, president of the Confederacy. Correct. You know, he was married to a black mixed race woman. I did not know that. Yeah, look at history. And um, her father had her in a school. She went to college in a school that catered to the white families mm-hmm. and their mixed-race children. And then he spent all the money and never really had, uh, you know, a lot of money. And then he left her, 
and went to another uh, black mixed race woman and stayed with her for years. And he pretty much died penniless, you know, penniless. And I, I know I'm like all of you racists that supported that didn't even know your general, your president, married a black woman and <laughs> preferred it. <laughs> and um, just losers and clinging to it, all the statues. I mean, who celebrates a loss? And I'm thinking of the losses I have in my life or have had. I don't have a day. Oh, that's the day I had a big divorce. Oh, this is the day I lost my best job. I celebrate the good things in life mm-hmm. and just the hating and the negativity. And when you're talking about drinking the Kool-Aid, when um, the guy that, that led that cult, he took the Bible and threw it in the floor in front of people. I know a lady that used to go there, and she left because it was so radical. So the People's, people's Temple. temple. She left. Hmm. Yeah, the People's Temple because it was so radical. And they said he took the Bible, threw it in the middle of the floor, and told everybody, get rid of your Bibles. They're no good. I am your Bible. I am your authority, as they all do. You know, they all, I am God. Well, this is kind of what Trump is saying. You know, abandon your own political party and follow me. Throw the rules away. Throw right. the Constitution Right, throw the party away, away the GOP. your authority. Yeah. And you know, this psychiatrist told my daughter once, she said, do you know who most of the people, she said, that are really mentally deranged, who did you think they say they are? And uh, my daughter, you know, said, what, Jesus? She said, yeah. She said, that's the biggest delusion they have, and they actually think that they're God or Jesus, and I'm thinking back to a few people that I knew that did, they had that illusion that they were God and Jesus, and they were totally out of their mind. And one guy, he's a young guy, he thought he was Jesus. He was gonna walk to the desert in Yakima from Hmm. Seattle and had some people following him. You know, it just shows you how people can be delusional. But what is this loserism? And we need to look into that because yeah. they have consistently... Mary, I, I, I've got to run. I'm sorry, we're out of time. But yeah, I spot on. I, yeah, I, I agree. What is this loserism? That's a great question. Mike in Lomita, California. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Thanks for everything you do. I just wanted to uh, quibble about something you said on yesterday's show that the Trump death cult was unprecedented in American history and it's the scope of its death and destruction. And you're thinking my, of the flu of, of 1918 and the, and the anti-maskers no, back then? No, I'm thinking of the pro-slavery cult and the American Civil War, oh. which reached uh, 600,000 to 700,000 fatalities. Yeah. So the, the Trump death cult may get there yet with a breakthrough variant, but the Civil War, oddly enough, it's uh, a sort of a cult uh, that Trump seems to endorse uh, in his zeal to protect Confederate monuments and all. But uh, as for you know, just the scale of uh, death and destruction cost, I would I would call the Confederacy the uh, a worse death cult than the Trump death one. Yeah. Yeah, I don't disagree. There was also, you know, during the so-called Spanish flu pandemic back in 1918, 1919, here in Oregon, there was a famous trial. There are photos of it in the in the newspaper. Of, in fact, uh, the jurors, one of the jurors, wrapped a towel around his head and cut holes for his eyes. Um, <laughs> and other people were wearing masks, but it was a trial of a guy who refused to wear a mask. And uh, they had mandated masks. There was, uh, it was not a national mandate. Woodrow Wilson was president at the time, and he literally never once mentioned the flu pandemic, even though he mm-hmm. himself caught the flu when he was in Europe on a trip and, and got very, very sick from it. But he did not die. It was mostly killing young people. If you were under 30, you were more likely to die from the Spanish flu. And, yeah. But there was this huge anti-mask movement, calling it government tyranny and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I suppose we shouldn't be totally surprised.
You know how uh, Arlington National Cemetery got to be where it is? Yeah, it was Robert E. Lee's plantation. They took it away from him. Yeah, well, for delinquent taxes. And, oh, uh, I didn't know that. He, he has a fellow Southerner who stayed loyal to the Union and blamed Lee for complicity in all the death that was happening, uh -huh. designated it for a cemetery so that Robert E.'s front porch would be a bunch of graves. Oh, interesting. In it, how appropriate, yeah. right? I mean, how very, very yeah. appropriate. General Montgomery Meigs, he blamed, as many others did, blamed yeah. Lee for being disloyal to the country. And the thing that people, particularly the monument fetishists, completely forget is that Robert E. Lee publicly, I mean, it was, you know, he, he wrote it and it was published in newspapers, said, do not make any monuments to the cause of the South, the cause of the Confederacy. It, it, it is not... It is not, it, you know, on reflection, it is not a noble cause. I'm, I'm wildly paraphrasing here, but you can find this fairly easily. Uh, he did not yeah, want there ever to be a monument to himself in particular. And yet there's Robert E. Lee statues all over the country. Yeah, and uh, the irony is, uh, one of his quotes was uh, rather disparaging of slavery as an institution, and yet the uh, pro-slavery people seem to have tried to make a god out of him. Yeah, yeah pro-slavery and, and white supremacist. Yeah, that was the basis mm -hmm. of justifying slavery. So, yep, Mike, thank you. Well said. So let me just toss this one other thing out, and I'll do it fairly, fairly briefly. And that is what happens when, not if, but when Republicans simply refuse to certify a Democratic victory? This is the essence. It's not much discussed, which I, I find mind-boggling. But this is the essence of the Georgia voter suppression law and the one that the Republicans in Texas are trying to pass. And it's contained in laws that are in over a dozen states, have already been passed in over a dozen Republican states. Now, most of those Republican states are not going to go for, uh, let's say, in 2024. Let's just imagine, for example, that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris run for a second term. And Joe Biden is still going strong and he's running for re-election, which is everything that he's saying he's going to do right now. So in most of those states, it's, it's not going to be an issue because, you know, they're going to go for whoever the Republican is. But the so-called swing states, the states that could go either way, you know, Texas, Arizona, Pennsylvania, where they have a Democratic governor who's blocking this, but certainly their legislature is trying this, Georgia. Michigan, Wisconsin, again, Democratic governors who are blocking it, but the state legislatures are entirely controlled by Republicans because of gerrymandering. Even though a majority of people in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, all voted for Democrats statewide, the majority of people voted for Democrats to control their House and Senate. Nonetheless, their House and Senate, their state houses and Senates or assemblies are entirely controlled by Republicans because of gerrymandering. And they now have the legal ability it hasn't been tested in the courts, of course, to simply say, you know, it looks like Joe Biden won the election here in, in, you know, fill in the blanks in Georgia. It looks like Joe Biden won the election in Georgia, but uh, we're not going to certify that. We're just not going to do it. We're going to send a slate of electors on behalf of uh, Donald Trump or, you know, uh, Rick Scott or whoever the nominee happens to be, Ron DeSantis. What do we do? I put this out as a serious question to you. I've been struggling with this for a couple of weeks now, wondering, because, you know, this is on the horizon now. It's like, you know, in warfare, when, when a new weapon is developed, it is 100% certainty that within the next generation that weapon will be used. And this is true for everything from the bow and arrow to the crossbow to the nuclear bomb. When new weapons are developed, they get used. Well, similarly, when new laws are passed that allow politicians to hold on to power that they legitimately no longer have, they will get used. So what do we do? Obviously, the first resort would be to go to the courts and say, wait a minute, this isn't right. It's unconstitutional. But I mean, look at the makeup of the court right now, the Supreme Court, which is where it would end up. The Supreme Court already awarded the 2000 election to a Republican in violation of the 10th Amendment to the Constitution. The state Supreme Court of, of Florida had ordered a statewide recount. 
which we now know would have given the election to Al Gore, now that all the ballots were recounted by the New York Times and the Washington Post. It took a year, but they did it. An audit, if you will. Um, but the Supreme Court intervened and stopped that recount, thus guaranteeing George W. Bush would become president. So the Supreme Court has already thrown one election to the GOP, which brought us the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. Why wouldn't they do it another time? So, you know, short of getting out there on the streets, I, I don't know what to do. Obviously, the courts obviously, you know, passed the For the People Act, which puts, you know, which standardizes statewide, you know, standardizes federal elections and also eliminates the power of states to do much of this. But it's, it's not even completely bulletproof. We need legislation. So anyway, let's pick up some of your phone calls. Jan in Edna Green, Indiana. Hey, Jan, what's up? I'd like to add to your list of things that Democrats can do to further the cause a little bit. Um, I think DeJoy should have been fired two months ago or whenever. Yep, and the two guys who are running Social Security and Medicare who are Trump appointees and are trying to destroy the programs, and the guy who's yeah. running the, uh, the Internal Revenue Service who's a Trump appointee and trying to destroy that program, all these guys are still there and they need to be fired. I'm with you, Jim. And, why, and why are they still there, Tom? It seems as if Biden and Schumer don't want to help themselves. As a member of the left, the more that they just stand around with this namby-pamby bipartisan stuff and everything's going to be fine, well, it's not. I am less inclined to go out and do anything for them in two years if they can't help themselves. Yeah, I get it. And sadly, a lot of people will feel the same way, Jan, and they do need to be doing something about these things. They have done an awful lot about an awful lot of things. But the fact of the matter is that what Trump left was an absolute screaming pile, of, flaming pile of crap. And it's, it's going to take more than a few days to get, to get it cleaned up. DeJoy is a special case because he can't be fired by the president. But the head of the IRS, the head of Social Security and Medicare, they could be toast. Anyhow, get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.